You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. It's good to be back in the pulpit, especially after this crazy winter that we've been having and experiencing, right? Winter storm warning and uh, we had the blizzard last week, the blizzard warning, which many of you know, I got stuck in a snow drift on the country road near my house and uh, uh, quite an adventure, no doubt. Um, But it is good to be back together and to be back worshiping God with each other and to uh, be singing together and to uh, be in God's word together. And so, um, yeah, just it's just good to be back and good to be with you all. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can open it up to the book of Galatians. If you've been trekking along with us, um, you know that we've been going through the book of Galatians. And, um, you know, we just started in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to make our way all the way to the end of the book. And today we'll be uh, wrapping up, I guess in a sense, uh, chapter 2. And then we'll turn the page in two weeks from now, into chapter 3 of Galatians. And so this morning, chapter 2, will be in verse 15. We'll take it all the way to the end of the chapter, which is verse 21. And so I'll read, and then we'll just simply just dive in and see what God has for us this morning. I just, before you, you know, read the text, whenever we open God's Word together, He's, he's speaking to us. And I want to always want to remember that, right? Now that's why I say what I say at the end of, you know, Every time I read our primary text, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God that that has meaning. And so I hope you feel that and you know that when we read the scriptures together publicly. Well, here's God's word for us this morning. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul continues in verse 17, but if... In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I, now these are the words many of you may know already, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On Friday, I uh, I received a haircut from a, a, a local establishment here in the Waukee. And as often the case, the stylist and I chatted a bit. Uh, you know, just kind of small talk f- for the most part. And, and if you know me, I 
Yeah, I can talk to the stylist. I can talk to the waiter or waitress at a restaurant. I can talk to the stranger at the airport. It's just, you know, kind of who I am. It's my personality. Um, and so we kind of, you know, through this small talk, the question, you know, almost always arises, right? Uh, the question of, like, what do you do for a living? You know, I, and I told her I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor here in, in this area. Now, I'm always curious about how a person responds after hearing, I'm a pastor, right? Um, sometimes people just like stop talking. That's one response. They're just, for whatever reason, they're just like, all right, I'm just done. Conversation over. I'm just going to cut the hair and move on. And then sometimes people kind of shift the conversation into a different direction. You know, they're, they're talkers, but they don't want to talk about anything spiritual. And then sometimes, you know, the conversation continues down kind of this spiritual path. And this young lady continued to talk about various pastors and ministers that she had uh, given a haircut to recently. And, and as we dialogue, uh, she, she made a statement that I f- find common in our culture. I, I'm sure you've heard the statement before or, or something like it. As we were talking about, you know, these spiritual things, she's spiritual matters. She said, you know, I, I don't I don't care what a person believes as long as they're a good person. The implication being as long as you are a good person, then then everything's going to kind of be fine in the end. I hear this all the time. I grew up believing that if you're just like a good person, you know, you're, you're going to go to heaven. God is like happy with you. One, one more story, and then we'll kind of dive into the text here. I recently had a similar conversation while I was visiting my parents in uh, Dubuque, Iowa. Yeah, wh- while I was there, I was you know passing through, and I just stayed for a night, wanted to see how they're doing. And, we, and one evening, we were um, grabbing some grub at uh, Old Chicago. And Old Chicago, for my dad, is like what what Cheers is to Norm. You know, everyone when he walks in, he's like, "Hi," you know, in my dad's name, right? And uh, everyone knows his name, my dad's name at Old Chicago in, in Dubuque. And naturally, we sat down and started eating, and then, of course, a friend comes by and just casually, as if it was every day, just sat down with us and started talking. And he was a nice guy, enjoyed speaking with him, and naturally, he, he and I began to converse, and he asked the question, right, what people usually ask, hey, what do, you, what do you do for a living? And once again, I waited for his response. And once again, the conversation moved into a spiritual direction. I heard the statement, heard this statement from my parents' friend. As long as you are a good person and you do what is right, then God will accept you. And throughout the course of this conversation, my mom asked me if I believed that. And I said no. I said a person cannot be made right before God because of anything a person does. And then I began just to explain the gospel. And it's the gospel, this gospel message that we keep reading about in the book of Galatians. You know, I wish these examples um, were the exception to the rule in our culture, but they are not. In our culture, they are the rule. If you are a good person, then everything's going to be fine in the heaven, or you're going to go to heaven, or God's going to be okay with you, however you want to articulate that. 
And I think it's fair to say that the cultural rule of merits-based justification has also made its way into many churches. This morning, from God's word, we hear something different, which means we need to ask the question, if your good works cannot save you, then what? And what are we talking about? If you just can't do the right thing and then be made right with God or for some way to be, for God to be pleased with you, then what? I think the Apostle Paul, God's word, gives his answer and is clear. Galatians 2, 15 to 21, is an intersection of several really important principles of the Christian faith. Honestly, there is much that can be said which will not be said because of kind of the theological richness and theological depth of this particular text. Uh, What is intersecting in our passage is faith, the law, and this word we keep reading about and talking about, justification. These three intersecting roads lead us to another precious truth that we read in verse 20 of Galatians 2. Each of these principles can be sermons in and of themselves, so, but with, I mean, we just don't have time for that today. We want to stick with the text and what Paul's really trying to communicate. With this said, my goal is to show how and why these principles of Christianity intersect and kind of what this means for our faith, for Christianity. So up to this point in, in Galatians, Paul has been using uh, personal examples to show how the gospel of free grace has been opposed you know, basically from Galatians 1, 1 all the way to where we're at today, Paul is like building an argument brick by brick. He's being very intentional. He's leading us somewhere. Paul has been leading us to his most clear statement about the core of the gospel of free grace. So if there is a flag that Paul is going to plant directly in the ground and he's going to stand by, It's verse 16 in Galatians 2. Verse 16 in Galatians 2 is extremely important for Paul's theology. So I want to spend a few minutes by isolating this verse and looking at why this particular verse is so significant. Let me me reread it so so that we know what we're getting into. And I'm going to reread it with those three terms in view. Faith, law, and justification. You're going to see them here. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be, there's that word again, justified. Perhaps you've noticed several terms repeated, like I said. Um, We also see some of these terms in later verses in our passage, verse 21, verse 20. These terms, faith, law, justification, are important. Paul used them, like I said, to build his theology, a specific theology we call justification by faith alone. So let's spend some time talking about each of these terms. Let's take them one by one, explore really what they mean to Paul. How did Paul understand these particular terms? And then how do they come together for Paul. I keep saying they're like an intersection of terms that come together. Paul's again leading us 
some somewhere. And hopefully by the end, we'll see why justification by faith alone, why this particular theology means you have life in and with Christ. That was verse 20. That's where we're going to kind of end. Verse 20 there is really important. So let's begin with that first term, the law. We already know from Galatians 1 and 2 that observance to the law for some Jewish Christians is a big deal. Um, you know, I, I think it can be hard for us to kind of capture the significance of the law um, for Jewish Christians in the first century, but perhaps its significance is kind of akin to, say, the U.S. Constitution, right? If you love democracy, if you love the U.S. Constitution, it can be kind of hard to let go of. It, it almost, almost becomes difficult to comprehend life without the U.S. Constitution and like what that means for democracy, and so we kind of have that here, right? We have that with the law. In the first century, many Jewish Christians could not let go of the law, specifically, as we've read, circumcision and these so-called clean laws. These are the ones that Paul, um, he kind of shows us why the law matters and what it means for Jewish Christians. Now, I, I want to step back for a moment and explain more generally the purpose of the law for Paul. And the reason why I want to step back is because we've gotten specific on these particular areas of circumcision and the clean laws. But let's, let's just go, okay, what does the law mean for Paul in general? Because he highlights it time and again. Let's try to understand why. The, the Greek word for law, uh, namas, shows up three times in verse 16 and six times throughout our entire passage. Um, in verse 16, namas is connected to works. And I'm going to be mentioning that about faith and justification. And I, and I, and I say that when you begin to see patterns, you, when you read your Bible, you should be like, ah, there's something specific being said here. Now, it, it could be from a, you know, from a cursory reading of Galatians that one could say that Paul is attempting to remove the law from Christianity. Well, I don't think this is the case. The law does have a place in Paul's theology, and in Christian theology in general. The question is, why? What is, why does Paul spend so much time talking about the law? Here are a few reasons why the law mattered to Paul and should still matter to us. When I say law, I mean like what God gave in the first five books of the Bible, right? Uh, it's often called the law in the New Testament. First, the law reveals the holiness of God. So we don't, we don't got time to get into all the details about what it means for God to be holy, but I'll just, I'll simply try to summarize. God's holiness means that he is sinless and completely other than from you and me. Uh, everyone here is sinful <laughs> and we are not like God. He is holy. Here, here's more of what I mean. Did you know that there are 613 commands in the Old Testament given to Israel. 613. So I'm counting them all up. W you know, when I was a kid, you know, I, I like, had a hard time following two rules or commands given to me by my parents, right? I could figure out maybe two, like don't play in the road and don't, you know, be mean to your brother and sister. After that, everything's just kind of like, I don't know. I barely you know, keep those two. 
So if you wanted to be holy like God, you had to keep all 613 commands. Well, you know, it, it doesn't take a PhD to figure out that the standard wasn't going to be fulfilled by Israel. No matter how hard Israel tried, and we read this throughout all the pages in the Old Testament, no matter how hard, hard they tried, they failed. And Israel's failures help us to see God's other thanness to make up a word. It helps us to see his holiness. The second reason why the law is important to Paul is that it helped distinguish the people of God from other cultures, other people, other nations. Why was this important to God? This distinction. In a world of idolatry, again, if you read through your Old Testament, you know that if there's one, one particular area that we read God being upset with Israel over, it's idolatry. So in this world of idolatry, in various religions worshiping various gods, God gave the law so that his people could have a singular focus, a singular focus on him, on God. So it was a means of identification. And thus far in Galatians, we have seen Jewish Christians wrestle with what it means to identify with Jesus while embracing the law. They don't want to let go of it. Um, for example, circumcision was meant to be a seal of God's covenant with Abraham, right? Read Genesis 17. Again, a means of identification. And we, and we saw several weeks ago there, were, there was an emphasis on clean laws. The clean laws meant to be observed so that the Jews could like come to God, well, clean, right? All these laws made Israel distinct and set apart from other cultures and religions and set apart for God. One more reason why the law is important to Paul and why it's important to understand because of what Paul says about the law in our text. The third reason, which flows from my first point about the law, is that the law reveals sin. The law reveals sin our sin. For example, here is Paul in Romans 7. He says rhetorically, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. But I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness if the law had not said, do not covet. It's like Paul is saying, I would not have known sin unless the law existed, and I would not have known how unable I am to keep the law unless the law existed. So I'm going to go out on a limb. I think I'm, actually think I'm safe doing this and saying this, that you and I would not be able to keep all 613 commandments. You know, we've got a hard time remembering the 10 commandments. Point being, Paul knew that a person could not be justified by obeying the demands of the law. And it is because the law existed in the first place that allowed Paul to see what? He could not be justified by it. Paul knew he could not keep the law perfectly. So while the law is good, the effects are far-reaching. Even with the best intentions of the law in view, 
the law cannot make a person right before God. You cannot say you are justified by faith and by works of the law, or works in general, I think, is what Paul is really saying here as well. Paul highlights this point when he says he had to die to the law, verse 19, so that he would no longer be subject to the condemnation which comes from the law. So Paul, looking to the Old Testament, like reading his Bible, and also looking at the cross of Jesus Christ, he sees another way for a person to be made right before a holy other than God. So, this brief overview of the law leads me to the second term intersecting with the law, which is faith. The Greek word for faith is, uh, faith or belief, is pistis. Pistis shows up three times in verse 16, one more time in verse 20. Faith in Jesus Christ is Paul's answer to the question, what does it take for a person to be justified before a holy God? Now, now we do tend to think <laughs> that the Old Testament is all about the law and the New Testament is all about faith and grace. In reality, these terms are woven throughout the entire Bible. You'll read them from Genesis to Revelation. For example, regarding faith, Abraham, who lived before the law was given to Moses, is said to be a man of faith. Here's the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. Go down to verse 9. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, etc., etc. And his faith wasn't like him spinning a wheel and, you know, wherever the wheel landed, uh, you know, that's what he did. His faith was in God. That's what verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, who what? Designer and builder is God. By faith, he was following God. And all this came before the law was, you know, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with tablets and he gave the commandments. And of course, Hebrews 11 is a list of several Old Testament figures who lived before Christ, who had faith in God. Paul knows the importance of faith. In Galatians 2, he, de he declares faith in Jesus Christ, not the law, as the way to be made right before God. Now, there is another important aspect of faith we need to see from Galatians 2. Specifically, Galatians 2, verse 16. I've been saying for weeks that you've been being made right with God has nothing to do with your works. You know, I just keep saying it over and over. And that's what Paul is saying over and over. And I'm going to keep saying it because God's word keeps, keeps saying it. Paul not only means work of the works of the law, but I think he's more broadly saying that you can't be justified by any of your works. The only way you can be justified is because of the faith of Jesus Christ. Did you catch what I said there? The faith of Jesus Christ. In order to get to my point, I what I'm going to do for a moment here is give a literal translation of Galatians 2.16, direct, taken directly from the original language of the New Testament Greek. Now, it's, it's going to be really wooden and hard to follow, but I underlined a few key points in the text, and I'm going to talk about that underlined portion. So 
Here it is again, very literally. And again, I'm spending a lot of time on verse 16 because of the significance of verse 16. So here it is, knowing that a person is not justified out of or by works of the law. Those bracketed areas are areas that we have translation, you know, we making liberties to translate or we're adding words to smooth out the passage. So of the law, what or except through, see this underline, Jesus Christ faith. And we have believed in Christ in order that we might be justified out of or by, here is the underlined again, Christ faith. Now we can stop there for a moment. You kind of read that and you're just like, what's going on there? That's not natural <laughs> English for us. The question I want to raise from this rough translation is this. Whose faith are you saved by? Was it your own faith or was faith from another person? Hope you understand what I'm getting at here. In, in one sense, Christians want greater faith in God, right? We, we pray for ourselves and for each other to have greater faith in God. We'll continue to pray that at this church. I'm sure you've heard that from our pastoral prayers here. Lord, we want greater faith in you. But when it comes to the moment a person is justified, where does that faith come from? Twice, in verse 16, I think faith is connected to Christ. And I think that because the Greek, original language here, is in the genitive, which indicates faith has its object in Jesus Christ. If you are a grammar geek, man, this is like your wheelhouse. There's a couple more points that you're just going to love. If, you love. if you're like a grammar geek, you're going to love this. If you don't, you're probably going to glaze over for the next 20 seconds. But get this. In Paul's writings, Jesus is never the subject of the verb believe or faith, but more often is the object. Hence, Galatians 2.16 is saying the faith of Christ. In addition to this common grammatical construction, we also read in the Pauline epistles that humans, human beings, you and me, are often the subject of the verb faith or believe. For example, the New Testament makes statements like faith that has been granted or given to John Powers, right? Meaning, it is by the faith of Jesus that you are saved. Just think about that for a moment. If you were saved by your faith, then you would be adding something to justification. Faith comes to the believer as a gift from God. It is not something that an individual is capable of mustering up on their own. When were faith, were faith a, a work of man's own doing, man would then be in position to take partial credit for his redemption. But such concept is foreign Paul anticipated that men would tend to boast of their part in salvation when he wrote that faith is what? A gift of God that no one should boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. So what we, what we realize is that a cold, dead heart cannot muster up one ounce of faith. Now, all this may seem technical, but it's important because it drives home the point that God is sovereign over every human soul. 
And there's nothing a person can do to save him or herself. So Christian, you didn't conjure up the faith when you were saved. (laughs) You didn't do it. Instead, God, in love, in love, hear that, God, in love, gave you the faith of Christ. And that is how you became justified. All this leads to the uh, great Reformation principle, sola fide, which means faith alone. Charles Spurgeon was fond of saying that salvation is all of grace. It is all of grace. It's all of the grace of God which a person receives faith. How does a person respond to the gift of faith? You know, I think that's a fair question. For those who, well, for those who don't have faith, I would suppose justification by faith alone is is disturbing or even laughable and I, i'm not put off by that i get that right you haven't received the gift and know know how wonderful the gift is you're just gonna be like whoa that's weird right and they know those folks remain under condemnation that's what we read in the scriptures but for those who know they have saving faith because of a because of a holy god the feeling is absolutely liberating the freedom found in Christ, it's, it's, think about this, it's like drinking fresh water after walking in the desert for days. Can you, you imagine that? Just walking in the desert for days, your mouth is parched, and then someone gives you a glass of water. Nothing will taste better. Nothing can nourish the soul like the faith of Christ. Here's our last intersecting term, and then we will see how our text, our text pulls these terms together. Verse 16 is the first time the word justification actually shows up in the book of Galatians. I've been using the word because that's where Paul's been leading us. But this is the first time we, we actually get the word in, in Galatians. The Greek word for uh, justification is dikai, excuse me. We see it three times in verse 16. And if we count the translated word righteousness in verse 21, which also has that same root word, for justification, then we see this word five times in our text. And I've said in previous weeks that the word justify is understood by Paul in a legal sense. So, th- you know, for, you, for all you who grew up with law and order, think law and order. I've also said that the opposite of justification is condemnation. What Paul means by justification is twofold. When a person has saving faith in Jesus Christ, he or she is Declared not guilty, that's the first thing, and declared righteous. These, these two aspects of justification is important to understand. When the judge of the universe declares you not guilty because of the faith of Christ, something still needs to be done with your sin. Yes, you've been forgiven, but unless something else is going on when you walk out of the courtroom of divine justice, you still walk out as a sinner in the eyes of God. Therefore, the declaration that you have been made righteous is equally important as being declared not guilty by God. Here's how a wonderful pastor named Timothy Keller explains righteousness. He said, God accepts us despite our sin. We are not acceptable to God because we actually become righteous. We become actually righteous because we are acceptable 
to God. And I'm turning the phrase, I suppose, a bit there. But in other words, it is because God accepted you that you become righteous. You didn't become righteous and then accepted by God. In other words, he, he's saying there's nothing you could do to become righteous. God did the work in you. So what does it mean to be declared righteous? Here's an analogy I heard um, from a pastor I, I, that I met um, a week and a half ago at a, at a w preaching workshop that I participated in. <laughs> uh, perhaps some of you have heard of a uh, guy, I'm going to pronounce his last name horribly, Guy Fiari. There, we'll just, yeah, I pronounced it wrong. Excellent. Uh, let's just call him Guy. One syllable, I can handle that. Guy has the TV show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. The show has, been, to my surprise, been on air since 2007. Uh, the premise of the show is that Guy highlights several restaurants per show, and then he tastes the best of what each restaurant has to offer. Uh, there have been restaurants in the Des Moines, in the Des Moines area that have been featured by him. And uh, Guy is, judges their food. He's the judge. And as the judge of food, there is a particular word he uses to describe the food that he tastes that couldn't be any better. And I've had, I had to like YouTube it to understand what my pastor friend was telling me. He uses this word called righteous. He kind of does this thing with his hand or whatever. If you cook something for Guy and he calls it righteous, then you know it could not be any better. When God declares you righteous, God is saying you could not be seen by him any better. How is this possible, right? How is this possible? How is it possible for a wretched sinner to be made righteous before a sinless, other than holy God? One way to describe it is that a great exchange takes place. Your sin, revealed by the law, and I would say also through general revelation, read Romans 1, your sin has been nailed to the cross. Verse 20. And you receive the what we call the imputed righteousness of Christ. Jesus takes on your sin, and you take on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. The righteousness of Christ, I've explained it this way before, it's like putting on a robe. It covers you entirely. When you put on the robe, the holy judge of the universe does not see your sin, but he sees his perfect son, and he sees you as a beloved son or daughter in Christ. So Christ did what the law could not do. The law, your works, cannot make you righteous. If the law or your works could make you righteous, then Christ died on the cross for nothing, verse 21, and we are faith-filled fools. Before seeing where the intersection of the law, faith, and justification leads us, there is an objection raised in the text that we should probably deal with. It's an objection Paul's dissenters would have challenged him with. So for Paul, this 
he's trying to get in the head of it again by, by raising the objection. Here's the objection in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, so justified by faith in Christ, the faith of Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Uh, because Romans and Galatians are very similar in terms of what Paul is trying to communicate, a similar question is raised in Romans 1, or excuse me, Romans 6, 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In both passages, Paul says, no. No. In no way is justification by faith alone make Christ a servant of sin. And in no way do we continue to sin because of the abundance of God's grace through Christ. Paul answers this question in the next verse, which we'll explain. Here's the verse. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul's response to the objection is to say that anyone who returns to the law, so if you believe in justification by faith alone, and you return to the law, now that the age of salvation in Christ has arrived, that, that, kind, of, that kind of move would be fruitless. You can try to justify yourself by works all the way you want, but you will not succeed. To turn back to the law would only once again put a person under condemnation. But what about the charge that Christ is a promoter of sin if a person is justified by faith? Paul's answer, Christ doesn't promote sin, but it is those who live under the law who are revealed to be transgressors. Do you, do you remember Paul's frustration in rebuke of Peter earlier in Galatians 2? For Peter to capitulate to the Judaizers and say the Gentiles needed to observe the law in order to be justified was for him to put the Gentiles under the burden of the law. And Peter's actions also show us that while he knew the truth of the gospel, he went back to the law as a means of justification. To go back to the law as the locus of justification is to deny Christ to be condemned. On the other hand, and here's the bottom line, justification by faith in Christ removes the burden of the law, forgives sins, and sets free a righteous person from the power of sin. Therefore, Christian, do not go back to the law as the source of your justification. Do not go back to your works as if your works make you right with God as if your works allow you to be justified before God. So in, in sum, Christ is not the reason for your sin, and His grace is to me not taken for to granted to sin. A sinner, uh, a sinner made right by God puts away sin, longs to change, thirsts to be holy like God. And it is because of justification by faith alone in which you are able to, to change. And this leads us to verse 20. Paul describes the change in this particular verse. It's in this particular verse where we see the fruit of how these terms intersect. It's the result. Faith, justification, law. Let's read that verse again in verse, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and 
gave himself for me. There is a bit of mystery in this text. Mystery we would do well to embrace by faith. Here here are two mysteries I see here. Uh, Paul says we have been crucified with Christ. How is that possible? What does Paul mean when he says he's been crucified with Christ? The other profound mystery is that Christ now lives in Paul. How is it possible for Christ to live in Paul and us? You know, like there's not an MRI machine on the planet that is going to reveal that. Here's how we can make sense of some mystery. And it's life-giving. Paul says he's been crucified with Christ, which means the old self has been put to death. The reason why Paul does not need to feel or know condemnation because of his past persecution of Christians. You might remember, Paul vigorously persecuted Christians. Many speculate he even killed Christians. The reason why he's not condemned is because that old man has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. For a moment, consider what that means for you. Right? One of the reasons the book of Galatians is about your freedom is because your old sinful rebellious self has been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Hear me when I say this. Christians can sometimes refuse to live in this reality. There are Christians who carry condemnation everywhere they go because of past sin. And God says, no, no. Your past, present, and future sin have been dealt with. They've been dealt with. And how? Because you know they've been dealt with. Now you run, you dance, and you sing in that freedom. You thank God for that freedom. I, I know that I need to remind myself that my old self has been nailed to the cross with Jesus and is therefore there's therefore now no longer condemnation, but there's justification. I need to remind myself, and I'm sure all of you who have been justified by faith need to remind yourself of that as well. It's a beautiful truth. And to take things a step further, Paul continues his thought by saying, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20, right? The other profound mystery. How does Christ live in you, in Paul, in me? There are spiritual truths that exist that you might not see with your eyes, but you know with your soul, right? This is a reason why Paul's testimony of faith does not get old to hear. This is the reason why any person's testimony of faith does not get old to hear, regardless of age. When I hear a genuine testimony of the saving power of Jesus, I hear the same themes over and over. One, I I had an old self, and it's been nailed to the cross, too. And now I've been changed. And then three, and I can only explain that change because Christ now lives in me by the power of the Holy Spirit. This kind of change does not take place with a a 12-step program, right? This kind of change does not take place with various world religions that require works to be done in order to satisfy some deity. This kind of change doesn't take place by just being a good person. 
This kind of change only happens when Christ takes a hold of you and is in you. In the last part of verse 20, we read more about the justified life. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There's that word again, faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul lives in the flesh, like meaning flesh, meaning he, he's living on earth, right? Tangibly living his life. But he lives in the flesh by faith. Not only does he live by faith, but Paul knows, he, he, excuse me, he knew that his faith flows from God's love for him. An intense love for him. How does Paul know God's intense love for him? Son of God gave himself up for him. So it's the sacrificial death of Jesus. It's his, the death of Christ in which Paul knows the love of God. Yeah, at the Powers household, I can be uh, known for pausing movies to ask my kid, kids questions. I, t- I try to take, my, my, what I'm doing is I try to take secular media and show my kids shades or shadows of Christian truth. And while we were still living in Minnesota, we were watching the, this movie called Inside Out. It's a cute movie. I like it. About three-fourths through the movie, there is a remarkable scene of self-sacrifice. Uh, the main character, Joy, and her, her new friend, and her new friend, kind of clownish figure called Bing Bong, are in the cavern where they are. I mean, the implication in the scene is that they're going to die. But as chance would have it, and you got to use your imagination here, as chance would have it, along with them in this pit, this cavern, is Bing Bong's magical wagon. And the wagon flies when you sing, when you sing specifically to the wagon, a particular song. So Joy and Bing Bong realize if they ride on the wagon and sing to the wagon, they might be able to fly high enough to get out of the cavern and into safety. But then Bing Bong, realizes something. They tried several times to do this, right? Joy and this uh, and Bing Bong, they go up and they, they, they don't make it to the top. And then Bing Bong realizes the collective weight of Joy and himself was too much for the wagon to take them high enough. There comes a point in the scene where Joy is about to give up. And Bing Bong encourages Joy one more time. We're going to do this one more time. As they push the wagon, sing to the wagon, jump onto the wagon, they go up and up out of the cavern. And But Bing Bong, knowing that the chances of success is zero, he intentionally falls out of the wagon and Joy flies to safety. Bing Bong gave up his life to save Joy's life. And this is what Paul is saying in the last clause of verse 21. Verse 20. Christ gave up his life so that you could have your life. It was all done out of love. It is because of the death of Christ that you have been made right before a holy God. A justified life does not forgive, forget God's sacrificial love. It's quite a remarkable passage, I think. Now, how could I possibly sum up Galatians 1 and 2? Right? Here's my best shot. Galatians 1 and 2. There's nothing you can do to be made right before a holy God. 
Paul just goes after that over and over and over again. God makes you right with God. Get that? God makes you right with God by giving you the faith of Christ. When you have faith, Christ lives in you. Your justification and faith is possible because of God's great love for you. His great love is most clearly demonstrated when Christ died on the cross for you, which is where your old self also died. And Christian, Christ lives in you. Galatians 1 and 2 is a necessary foundation as we turn the page to Galatians 3. As we dive into Galatians 3 and then Galatians 4, we are actually going to see the depths of the foundation. The foundation's been laid, justification by faith alone. Now now we're, now we're going to see how far that foundation goes. I think as we continue on, we're going to see that the gospel of free grace goes deeper into our hearts, and it's going to change us more and more into the likeness of our Savior. Let's pray.